It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. On today's program, we're going to talk about storytelling and power. One of the most resilient myths in America is that the rich and powerful are rich and powerful because they earned it, that we too can earn wealth and power, and that if we have no wealth and no power, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. The narrative that we can all pick ourselves up by our bootstraps is a pernicious delusion. It ignores the reality that every rich and powerful person owes their success to the systems that created and maintained favorable conditions, and in particular, the people who supported them along the way. Disney is a company known for fantastical storytelling on the screen, but there is a darker reality in the story of how they treat their workers. Our first guest today will be social activist and documentary filmmaker Abigail Disney. In her latest film, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, she turns a critical eye on her own family business and tries to separate fact from fiction. And the facts are not pretty. That's just the first half of the show. In the second half, Ralph once wrote a fable entitled Only the Super Rich Can Save Us which is its own fantastical tale of a group of rich people deciding to band together and use their resources to attain justice for all. Regular listeners of this program may know of a real group of rich people who decided to band together and use their resources to attain justice for all. Which brings us to our second guest. We welcome back Erica Payne, co-founder of the Patriotic Millionaires, who, of all things, horror of horrors, are fighting for their right to be taxed more. Ms. Payne is the co-author with Morris Pearl of Tax the Rich, how lies, loopholes, and lobbyists make the rich even richer. Today, we're going to talk to her about their latest strategy, organizing and teaching working-class voters how to fight for their own interests, raise the minimum wage, and tax the rich. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's talk to a Disney who found out that no matter how much you wish upon a star, or email Bob Iger, not all dreams come true. David? Abigail Disney is a social activist, philanthropist, and an Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker. She's also chair and co-founder of Level Forward, an ecosystem of storytellers, entrepreneurs, and social change makers dedicated to balancing artistic vision, social impact, and stakeholder return. She also created the nonprofit Pieces Loud, which uses storytelling to advance social movements, and the Daphne Foundation, which supports organizations working for a more equitable, fair, and peaceful New York City. She is co-founder of Fork Films, a nonfiction media production company, which produces original documentaries and the podcast All Ears. Her latest film, which she co-directed with Kathleen Hughes, is The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Abigail Thanks so Disney. Much. Thanks so much. Welcome indeed, Abigail. Before we get into the nitty-gritty here, and there are some skeptics, as always, for things that heirs and heiresses do yep. when they see the light and they yep. want to change things, what is it that you're trying to communicate in all these different forms of media? And number two, what would you want the viewers and listeners of your media to do by way of action once they see the clear right. road ahead for change? Right, right, right. Well, first of all, in terms of heirs and heiresses, 
they've gotten into a lot of trouble down the years trying to impose their will on the world. I sort of think that my job, if I have one, is to impose the will of the world on the wealthy people instead of the other way around. So I'm trying to model what it looks like to not simply be loyal to the class or the position you were born into, but to a wider world that you're a member of and know better than anyone else. I'm trying to model what it looks like to step into your responsibilities for the things that you have without earning. And what I want people to do is, you know, listen to working people and recognize that very important social movement of the 20th and 21st centuries has involved workers standing up, people standing up for expanding civil rights and the dignity of regular people, as opposed to prioritizing the will and the wants of the wealthy few. And what would you like people to do? I hope you'll extend urging them to act all the way to Congress, because a lot of the things you want changed or repealed can only be done through Congress. So the laser beam focus, it seems to me, of all this public education has got to be to focus on 535 men and women who put their shoes on every morning like we do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's so much of this that has to happen through Congress. But I also think that, and you remember this, especially from the day Ronald Reagan took office, the country has been subjected to to a great deal of public education that has taken it in the opposite direction, away from the union movement, away from respect for labor, and toward this highly individual self-seeking vision of what it is to be a successful person. Certain amount of public education in the opposite direction has to happen. I think it's a heavy lift when you're pushing, and you'll forgive the language, bullshit, which is essentially what came out of the Reagan administration and everything since. And I think you you don't have such a heavy lift for public education when what you're pushing is actually good for people and the truth. But I do think a certain amount of public education has to happen in order for Congress to be able and have the political wherewithal to do what they need to do. So I'm trying to add to the chorus of voices out there saying that we need to listen to workers because that strengthens the folks in Congress. And also I'm trying to urge at a personal level wherever I can because I have this unfair level of access. I'm trying to use that to reverse the damage wealthy people have done. Well, I'm glad you refer to Reagan because I think liberals, progressives underestimate the gigantic impact that this cruel man with a smile had on the culture with his market fundamentalism. You remember his phrase, the magic of the marketplace? Yes. Well, we put out a critique of market fundamentalism showing in over a dozen ways that the big corporations do everything they can to manipulate, destroy, co-opt the market through monopolies and unfair subsidies and tax escapes and deregulation and so on. So you might want to follow up that uh, focus on Reagan with a more granular critique. And it's on our website, nader.org. It's critique of market fundamentalism. Well, let's go to the next issue here. One of my concerns about progressive groups is they don't connect with each other. They don't read each other's materials. So let me ask you, have you connected with the increased taxes on the rich and corporations group called Patriotic Millionaires? Oh, yeah. I've been a member for years now, and I try to speak up whenever they need me to speak up on anything. I mean, what Reagan accomplished in his very short eight years, when you think about it, was so much. It was interesting to me how often it dovetailed with the Walt Disney Company because he he made the announcement of his signature tax move 
at Disney World. It's kind of remarkable. He was there at the opening. He announced this big thing there. You know, all, of course, Disney loved him. But the change in the, not just the way we were taxing people, but the idea of what taxes were for and about and what an individual's responsibility is, especially as a wealthy person in terms of, you know, making sure everybody had opportunity. That was a very big piece of what he accomplished in those eight years. The reason he accomplished it was the default of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Because they could have gone after him with powerful counter arguments. You are deregulating, protecting people's lives, their health, their safety, their economic well-being. Is that what you want? They did just yeah. fell on the defensive right when he pushed his tax cut, and they never recovered through his was, eight years. Yeah. There was a dramatic failure of leadership on the part of the Democratic Party, which then offered itself up for the neoliberal agenda into the 90s and oddies. And so, we, you know, not only did we not counter the market fundamentalist ideology, we, we kind of pulled it into the Democratic agenda. And so, you know, under Clinton, the adjustment was made that caused executive pay to skyrocket. He did not really push an agenda that was progressive at all, actually. He was a believer is, in the idea that markets fix all things. Yeah, to the contrary, he pushed for these corporate managed trade agreements. In the, in the terrible year of 1996, which is an election yeah. year for him, he supported all kinds of bills to concentrate power in the drug industry, the communication industry, yeah. the agribusiness industry. Yeah. The book is yet to be written about what he allowed yeah. in 1996. We're talking yeah. about Bill Clinton. So let me ask you. Do you make the distinction between charity and justice in your many speeches and communications? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, how do you distinguish? Well, charity is is reaching out across a separation and an attempt to kind of sprinkle something over the people there on the other side of some kind of Rubicon. It never really digs into the essence of the difference between you. And the difference between you is only circumstantial. It's not essential. It's a matter of who has more money and was born with more resources. So if you're not using that advantage you have to question the circumstances that have located you in such a separate place, then sort of drizzling a little bit of nice, I guess I think of it as like icing <laughs> over the top of the situation other people are in, isn't really helping. It's just sort of pouring into this sucking hole and never changes the circumstances. Real justice and is justice. asking yourself, like, how do I use my money, my resources, my positional power to alter the system that put me in this place to begin with? Now, I know this phrase is subject to misinterpretation by people, but we have to raise it. You're quoted as saying, we have to make American capitalism work for everyone. Yeah. That's your quote. And then you add, but with imagination and courage, it can be changed, end quote. First, distinguish for our audience the difference between corporate capitalism, big time, mm -hmm. and small time Main Street business capitalism. Yeah, well, the corporate capitalism that currently rules the day in America, it's like a fundamentalism. I mean, you use the word fundamentalist. It's its fundamentalist in the sense that it has reduced the idea of what a corporation's job is to one small task, which is the violence of every fundamentalism. It's, it's a reduction and a narrowing rather than a broadening. So the understanding that only shareholders matter because they own the company and that therefore what they need is paramount has translated into any number of 
violences at the base of what makes a corporation move. You know, if the CEO is unwilling to mop the bathroom, but the bathroom must be mopped, then what the bathroom mopping person is doing is essential. It must happen. And he needs to pay the person a fair wage for that freaking job. And, you know, every time I ever spoke up about Disney, like especially on Twitter, they would send a tweet out to all my followers about their education program. And for me, that was like, that that really summed it all up because tweeting about an education program for your low wage workers is like saying that I have no obligation whatsoever to pay people fairly unless they do something to make themselves more valuable to me, in which case we can have a conversation. But it accepts the idea that our capitalist system, this corporate version of it, rests on the, you know, the bones and the blood of the people who are working at these low-wage jobs, and no one intends to change their circumstances in any kind of material way. So if we look at capitalism more broadly as something that matters because it creates livelihoods, not jobs or gigs, but livelihoods for the people who work in them, because in doing so, it creates a healthy, interacting and relatively equal society. Unless we expand our idea of what capitalism is for and about, we're going to have the same result over and over again, because it's always a race to the bottom to see who can squeeze the most lemon juice out of that little lemon. And historically, our country has only been able to deal with corporate capitalism by expanding the public sector. Mm -hmm. That's like the public lands and the public airways and public pensions, Social Security, Medicare, public drinking water systems and so forth. Mm -hmm. The other way they've done it is to regulate, put boundaries around corporate greed, which has an infinite capacity for it. Look at the CEO pay that you point out. 800 times sometimes the average worker in the company that CEO is making. Some of them are making $50,000 an hour on a 40-hour week. So do you see that or do you go beyond that? And then there's, of course, the commons. You know, the greatest wealth in our country is owned by the people. It's called the public lands. It's called public research development. Developed all these industries, Silicon Valley and aerospace and pharmaceutical. And all the pension funds and the mutual funds, but they don't control it. People own it, but they let the corporations control it through their influence in Washington and state government. So let's have your philosophy here. Would you just expand the public sector, toughen up regulation, law and order against corporate criminals? I think you have to expand both. Both have been assaulted so thoroughly that they're really on their last ebb. I mean, I've certainly made content for public television and watched the horrible diminishment of the public airwaves over the years. In fact, my family was investing in broadcasting in the 1980s, and I saw what happened when the Fairness Doctrine disappeared. And We opened up ownership Mm -hmm. to people like Rupert Murdoch and so forth. So we have to take the airwaves back on behalf of the people who could benefit by them, but right now are sort of suffering at their hands. We need to take back a lot of the public resources that we have allowed. This is why corporations and the advocates for fundamentalist market capitalism have been very eager to push everything that they can into private hands rather than public hands, because then they don't have to be accountable to anybody for that. So you you have to expand the public sector. 
you have to revitalize the elements that still exist in the public sector, but you also have to have the regulation that we have to reinvigorate. Look at how quickly the Republicans wanted to kill the, all the new IRS agents. They know that much of their power rises from the way they've been gaming the tax system. And, you know, so the rules are themselves benefiting wealthy people, but on top of it, they are adding to their benefits by escaping taxation in any way that they can. They're not auditing wealthy people because they don't feel equal to the kinds of accountants and lawyers that wealthy people can pay for. So, you know, the first thing they went after, after the debt reconciliation thing, was the IRS agents. So we need to reinvigorate the IRS. We need to invigorate OSHA. We need to reinvigorate NLRB and the other referees that have been sort of made anemic by the constant assault well, of budget cuts. We're talking with Abigail Disney, author, filmmaker, advocate, Whistleblower on her company, Disney, which we'll get to in just a couple minutes. Do you agree with the phrase that corporate capitalism, when it gets into trouble by mismanagement, Wall Street collapse, speculation, corruption, criminality, always gets bailed out by American socialism? Yeah, Washington. that's exactly right. Yeah. And if that's the case, how many times do we have to go through these cycles where they collapse the banks or they collapse the economy, as in 2008, and have the taxpayer bail them out, and no prosecutions, the Wall Street yeah. crooks. How yeah. many times do we have to go these cycles? Eight million workers are unemployed and the yeah. Wall Street collapse before we want to make more fundamental change in the system, Abigail. I wish I knew how many times we have to go through this. I suspect we're heading for another one soon. And I don't know what Joe Biden will do with something like that. But certainly Obama left homeowners high and dry and preferred to bail out the banks. And he was being sold an idea of the market by market fundamentalists, you know, who were saying that, like, if we don't bail this out, then we all go over the edge. There was a failure to hold accountable the people who had brought us to that point. And so they are bringing us back to that point, And they are going to continue to do that until they have to pay some consequences for what they do. We've bailed out the banks enough times, and they've only gotten more powerful. So the fundamental thing that has to change is money and politics. Because really, in fact, when Democrats are in charge, their heart is really not entirely in it for working people because of the amount of money that has come to them from tech people, from hedge funds, from banks and so forth. They're, you know, almost entirely captured too. you know, the hope for me is in the genuine progressive voices that are rising through the ranks. And there has been some promising emergence of good progressive voices from the grassroots in the last few years. Now, why do you think so many tens of millions of people swallow this propaganda mm -hmm. by the Republicans and their corporate paymasters mm -hmm. and vote for them? Well, you know, Red our, states, for example. Yeah. Our problem is that I think progressives are not good explainers. They don't know how to boil things down to their essences very well because we have complicated answers. And what the right has consistently done is presented us with what seemed like a series of simple choices, and nothing simple is going to get us out of the situation that we're currently in. So unfortunately, again, it's easier to sell bullshit than it is to sell the truth. And they've been very effective salesmen. You know, I come from a very conservative family, as I know you know. 
and not just on my father's side, but on my mother's side as well. I mean, I had relatives who worked in the Reagan administration and who were very right-wing figures, and they believed very fundamentally that democracy wasn't really a very good idea, that people are not generally all that smart, and that really, in fact, the government should be run by a handful of people who've demonstrated how smart they are by making money and becoming powerful. I mean, that is the essence of where the right wing has led us and their economic agenda has always been essential to this road that they've taken us down. So we need to move money out of politics or we're just going to continue to have a captured Democratic Party. Well, again, you know, the pathway leads to Congress, Congress, Congress. I think all our efforts have to focus on Congress. So all the work that you've been doing in recent years and the millions of people you've reached and the truth-saying that you've been engaged in and the fact dissemination, have you been able to point to one vote in Congress that has changed as a result? You know, members of Congress have pretty set voting patterns. Has anybody reacted to you or to your supporters and said, you know, I've really got to change my understanding of this political economy and the concentration of power? And I agree with your agenda. I think that the weakness in Congress has a lot to do with a feeling of being unsupported in the popular realm. And so what I try to do is raise the voices of people to strengthen the progressive voices in Congress. I'm not sure I can point to a single vote, but I do know that what happened in the Inflation Reduction Act was that there was an inclusion of a fair number of fairly progressive ideas, including around the environment, that Congress felt the ability to fight for because they thought the American public was with them. So I don't think it's as simple as I made this film and then he changed his vote. But I will say that 45,000 workers in Orlando got a 38% raise a couple of months ago. And I also know they're negotiating Anaheim and it's looking like it's going to be a better story in Anaheim as well. So I know that at this particular company, we've had real progress. And I also know that at other I've had other CEOs say to me, like, I am suddenly starting to understand that we need to be thinking very differently about how, how we arrange and understand the division of the resources at the company. So slow and steady wins the race, I'm afraid. And I'm just going to keep raising the voices of people who don't have access. Well, you don't like to use the word minimum wage because you think that becomes a maximum wage for millions of low-income people. You like to use the word living wage. What do you think, given the overwhelming polls for support for a $15 minimum wage, which is not enough, as you point out, but at least it gets it up from the $7.25 federal minimum wage, apart from a few states raising their own minimum wage. What do you think? Why do you think Congress looks at all these polls. I mean, there are huge polls to crack down on corporate crime, break up the big banks, family paid sick leave, child care, extension of the child tax credit, increasing taxes on the wealthy, you know. All these are coming in at 70, 75, 80%, which means a lot of conservative voters. It's a left-right opinion. And yet, they don't change. Yeah, I mean- How do you explain that? I think that we're getting into the dynamics in Congress, which are incredibly stultified and stuck in the quagmire of special interests and lobbyists. And I think any individual congressperson on their own might say off the record a lot of things, 
But when push comes to shove and votes are getting counted, I don't think that they have the courage of their convictions most of the time. So that's why I use the word courage when I talked about what needs to change, because I think this is going to take people who are willing to lose their jobs as Congress people in order to advocate for things that people really want. The minimum wage and the fair wage, the one fair wage for people who get the sub-minimum wage, like waiters, those initiatives have passed on every ballot they've ever been on in the United States in the last few elections, every ballot in red states and blue states. So we know people will vote for this stuff. We just need to persuade Congress they need to get it together and get braver. Let's talk about Disney. When you Mm -hmm. started getting feedback from workers in Disney years ago, you were quite astonished. In fact, Mm -hmm. what led to your documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, you say, it seemed to me that there was a story to tell here not just about the cognitive dissonance between people at, quote, the happiest place on earth, end quote, referring to Disneyland, sleeping in their cars and not having enough food to put on the table. But it's also a story about what's become of the American worker of the last 50 years. How did this happen? How did this become so normal that nobody even comments on it? How does the world change so completely? so that it became to me what we needed to explore, end quote. So tell me the story of your self-revelatory development here Mm -hmm. as a trust fund heiress Mm -hmm. of the Disney fortune. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I start in the film by talking a little bit about who my grandfather was, who was Roy O, Walt's brother, and it was the Disney Brothers Company in the early, early days. You know, Walt testified for Joe McCarthy. He was a big anti-communist. They hated a union so very, very much. But they built much of the company at a time when they didn't really have much of a choice but to work with unions. And so they did. But, you know, my grandfather had a way of relating to people that was very personal, very warm. And there's something that's kind of crept into the CEO and the C-suite ideology or ethos about people not being as good as them. And I think that's part of what I was picking up on was that my grandfather really saw himself as just a peer with all the workers that he encountered when he came to Disneyland, which is why he wanted them to call him by his first name, which is why he wanted them to see him pick up garbage, because he just really wanted them to understand that he didn't think he was better. And it it is amazing to me that as this far right-wing guy, he would never have treated his workers in a million years the way the CEO at the time, Bob Iger, who was toying with running for president as a Democrat, was treating them on the regular. And that that was the thing. It was like the total capture of the entire American political spectrum by an idea about work and working that was the inverse in a relatively short period of time. The inverse of what my grandfather was doing as a matter of course, that struck me as somebody has achieved something rather quickly in historical terms that was basically a reversal of what I what I was raised on as a young person. And I wanted to understand, you know, exactly how that happened. What do you think your grandfather would have thought of CEO of Disney, Bob Iger's compensation package? Tell us. Uh, I know for a fact he would have been outraged and horrified. I know because like, I know how he lived, you know, he had a nice house and he had nice vacations and, you know, it wasn't like he was suffering, but you know, they had two cars and they had, you know, they did their laundry and like, they didn't have an expectation of being treated like royalty 
because he he didn't understand the guy at the top of the company as really all that important. And he wasn't in it for the money. I mean, I know that sounds a little bit Pollyanna of me, but as I understood my grandfather and, and Walt too, they had kind of accidentally found out how to do this thing that families really loved. And they saw the way families were really brought together by it. And they thought, this is a thing we're good at. Let's just keep doing that. And the money came as a result of what they were pursuing. I mean, I'm offering them a lot of credit, I understand. And I know about the cynicism and I know about the racism and the sexism and all the rest of it. But, But if you just give them some credit for thinking of what they were doing as a good thing, in some ways, it was a little bit of a social enterprise in the terms, you know, that now get bandied about. It was a little bit like we're going to do well by doing good. What was Bob Iger's compensation? Oh, in the year in the year that I decided to start the film, it was sixty five million dollars for a single year of work in the same year, which is thirty two thousand dollars in an hour for a 40 hour work week. And it was, you know, eleven twenty five was what people were being paid to come in and clean the gum off the sidewalks and do all the really hard things that make it sparkle and shine the next day for people to come in in the morning. This is an essential piece of how Disneyland sells itself. It is a sparkling place that's pristine. The story of its cleanness is part of what they're selling people who spend so much money to buy those tickets. And so for him to treat so disrespectfully, these people who are doing a thing that he knew perfectly well was central to the thesis of what Disneyland is proposing to people in order to get them to spend money. He was making $32,000 an hour on a 40-hour week. How much were the people who were inside the Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse uniforms making? Characters, I I think they're making something like 17. I know the janitors were making 1125 at the time I started it. It's up to 18 now. The, The lowest wage now is up to 18 but I know the hotel mates have gone significantly up to, to, I think, 24 or something. So little by little, the pressure is getting to them. They don't like the damage to their brand. I mean, they're not doing it because they're good. They're worried about their brand. Disney workers are unionized, right? Many of them are, but many of them are not. Most of them are not. Because it's a right to work situation. And, you know, we can talk about right to work laws. They were another, you know, of the brainchilds of the, the right wing lobby that brought Reagan to power. And they really have eviscerated the union movement because they've made it possible for unions to negotiate better wages on behalf of people who are not paying them dues and are constantly under-resourced. And, and that's a real problem. And it minimizes their leverage with the company. So, and, and they haven't, unions haven't always worked together all of that incredibly well. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this, but the unions have not, until I came in the first time in 2018, the unions had never actually talked to each other about what they were being paid and about their independent negotiations. And so they had decided to end the divide and conquer rule at Disneyland and start comparing notes. And that was when they they put a wage initiative on the ballot in Anaheim and they started working really hard in terms of bringing together the leverage they had together in negotiations. We're talking with Abigail Disney, who is the launcher of this documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. And Kathleen Hughes is one of the co-producers. Kathleen worked for us many years yes, ago. I know, I know. And she was terrific. This film has been seen at Sundance, official selection at Hot Docs, official selection at Traverse City Film Festival in 2022. It's an 
minute film. How do people get it? They get it on Amazon and iTunes. I hate saying Amazon in the context of everything I've just said, but all of the streamers have passed on the film for reasons that I'm sure you can imagine. So right now it's pay-per-view on iTunes and Amazon and Vudu and all the other places. And we're soon hoping to be able to get it up for free somewhere. We've been speaking with Abigail Disney, yes, of the Disney family in Disneyland. And she is out there with her documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. This is the golden age of documentaries on just about every subject from the U.S. military empire to environmental climate change issues to consumer labor protection. And we've never had better documentaries. We never had less effective follow-up and less change as a result. So we hope much better impacts occur from your documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. Thank you very much, Abigail. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Abigail Disney. We will link to her film, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we continue along the same theme with Erica Payne of The Patriotic Millionaires. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute. For Friday, July 7, 2023, I'm Russell Mokhyber. An airline ground worker died last week at San Antonio International Airport after getting sucked into the engine of an arriving plane. That's according to a report from NBC Dallas. Delta Flight 111 arrived in Texas from Los Angeles around 10.30 p.m. As the Airbus A13 was taxiing to the gate, a ramp worker was ingested into the plane's engine according to the National Transportation Safety Board. The employee, whose name has not been released, worked for Unifi, a company Delta contracts for ground handling operations. Our hearts go out to the family of the deceased, and we remain focused on supporting our employees on the ground and ensuring they are being taken care of during this time, Unifi said in a statement. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Hannah, and the rest of the team, and of course, Ralph Nader. Let's find out what the patriotic millionaires have been up to lately in their quest for economic justice. David. Erica Payne is the founder and president of Patriotic Millionaires, an organization of high net worth individuals that aims to restructure America's political economy to suit the needs of all Americans. Their work includes advocating for a highly progressive tax system, a livable minimum wage, and equal political representation for all citizens. She's the co-author with Morris Pearl of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Erica Payne. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you very much, Erica. This is an update, listeners. We had Erica on almost two years ago, and we're very intrigued to see how the patriotic millionaires are doing and their new grassroots effort to try to build pressure on Congress where the action has to conclude to develop progressive taxation of the rich and the corporate. Before we get into that, Erica, just tell our listeners what the patriotic millionaires are, how do you define millionaires, and how many members you have, and how many staff in Washington and elsewhere. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the Patriotic Millionaires first came together in 2010. It was during the lame duck session of Congress when it became quite clear to everyone that President Obama was going to cave to Republican demands to extend the Bush tax cuts. We got about 56 millionaires to sign a letter that basically said, for the good of the country, raise my taxes. And for whatever reason, it absolutely exploded in the media. We've been working together ever since to try to fix this country of ours and the political economy before it rips us apart. Right now, we're at 100-year levels of inequality. It's destabilized the entire nation. And our members believe that it'll be better for everybody, including them, if we can get this democratic capitalist system of ours back in working order. So we've got about 200 or so members in 38 states around the country. And we consider a millionaire people with either incomes of $1 million a year or assets of $5 million a year. We have no interest in taxing anyone with less than that amount of money. Okay, so that lays the scene. Now, it's sad to say that with all your efforts on Capitol Hill, and you, you go up and down the corridors, you don't just deal with email, you haven't gotten through to Republicans and Democrats, and even the chief Democratic culprit, Congressman Neal from Western Massachusetts, who was head of the House Ways and Means Committee, and when he took over in January 2019, one of the first things he said was he wasn't going to revisit the Trump tax cuts, which were heavily skewed, favoring the super rich and the large corporations. Tell us, before we talk about how you're going to the grassroots down to Whiteville, North Carolina, for example, tell us how frustrating was it? I mean, of course, you know, you were opposed by a lot of the Republicans, but a lot of the Democrats weren't all that great either, including Richard Neal. Well, I mean, let me tell you something. This is, this is, I've been working in this space for 13 years. And as far as I can tell, the billionaire class bought off the entire Republican Party and a sufficient number of Democrats that they've got a lockhold, a stranglehold on this economy. And as I said earlier, what they basically created is a system that guarantees we become more unequal more quickly over time. They've destabilized the entire country. They've threatened democratic capitalism around the world. And Democrats, for all that they you know, want to spout out a bunch of nonsense about how they want to support working people, we still have eight Democrats who are not on an inadequate minimum wage bill who seem to have no intention of getting on it. And we also have a number of Democrats, as you referenced, including the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, who have absolutely no intention of raising taxes on their donors. And so we're in a situation where our tax code values every dollar that an investor makes over every dollar that a working person makes. So mathematically, there's absolutely no direction this country can go in other than more unequal. And we're looking at a game of economic Jenga, where we're basically pulling money out of the bottom in the middle and putting it on the top, and the whole thing's in the process of collapsing. Mm -hmm. As you said recently on NPR, I'm amazed, NPR gave you an opportunity to talk to their audience. You said, quote, we hit a wall. We've hammered them on both sides of the aisle for 12 years. Okay, it's time to go to the people who hand them their power, end quote. You were talking about hitting a wall in Congress. And you point out that low-wage workers make up more than 40% of the labor force, quote, you say. They are the most powerful people in the United States, if only they realized it, end quote. And you quote a poll that says, quote, 71% of Americans think the economy is rigged against them. We've got news for them. They're right. End quote. All right, let's shift the scene to 
Whiteville, North Carolina. North Carolina is not quite a swing state, but it has possibilities in the 2024 elections. Whiteville has a population less than 5,000. The minimum wage in North Carolina is still $7.25 an hour, same as the federal rate, which hasn't been raised since 2009. You note that some states, like Texas, have even barred cities from passing ordinances increasing their own minimum wage at the city level, known as preemption. So give us a description. You're down there at Whiteville, North Carolina. You've offered people a free dinner, a little bit of a remuneration to come. Tell us what your experience was. Did it astonish you? And where did you leave these people in terms of zeroing in on their senators and representatives in Congress and at the state capitol? Well, yeah. So let me just back up a little bit and give you some more context for the decision to go to Whiteville in the first place. It was a couple of years ago. And as I said, we had this number of eight Democrats who we hammered endlessly to get them on a minimum wage bill. They patently refused. We had a Congress that the very best they could do on a tax bill, even when Democrats controlled the entire thing, was to increase some funding for the IRS which is a drop in the bucket. I mean, certainly enforcement is important, but we have got a tax code that's going to destroy the country. And so we really hit a wall with people and just Democrats seem to refuse to hear us. So we decided, you know what, let's go to talk to the most powerful people in the country. 45% of people in the United States of America make less than $18 an hour. A lot of them live in states that are determinative to the future of this country. So I thought, let's go talk to working class conservatives alongside working class Democrats and help them see exactly how the economy is rigged against them, what is happening in labor policy and what is happening in tax policy. Those are the two bookends that hold an economy together and tell them specifically exactly how the tax code rigs the economy against them and how the wage system rigs the economy against them and why if they don't change these two things, they and their families and their communities are going to continue to suffer in the way that they currently are. But rather than talking to everybody, and we have an online version of this program, so people are so welcome to go to AmericanAgenda.com and sign up for the online program. We have one tonight at 530. But what we wanted to see is if we go talk to these folks across party lines, multiracial groups of people, and talk to them about the one thing that matters most in a capitalist democracy, which is money, could we get them to set aside momentarily, if all that, some of these social issues that people use to divide everybody else. In North Carolina, I wanted to pick North Carolina because I'm from there. And I kind of figured if I have the experience that I have in Washington, if I could go talk to the people that I grew up with about what is actually happening in the nation's capital, maybe I could get through them. And so we picked Whiteville, North Carolina. As you said, it's a tiny little town. It's about half white, half black. It's one of the poorest towns in North Carolina and one of the poorest counties in North Carolina. And you may remember back, Ralph, when the transgender bathroom bill was going through North Carolina, what people don't know about the transgender bathroom bill was that it was actually a minimum wage bill. Charlotte tried to raise the minimum wage The North Carolina Republican-controlled legislature didn't want them to, so they introduced a preemption bill to prevent cities and towns from raising the minimum wage. They couldn't get that through, and so they wrapped 
a preemption minimum wage bill with a transgender bathroom bill and an effort to get religious so-called leader Franklin Graham on board with their plans. And so they shoved the transgender community. I mean, they, they basically sacrificed a group of individuals who were struggling as hard as anybody else in the world. And the entire effort was to keep people in Charlotte from making a minimum wage. And so that's the exact same thing that plays out on a federal level. As we tell the people in White Bull, if they are talking to you about something other than money, they are stealing your money. So the next time somebody is talking to you about abortion or transgender or critical race theory or any of these other things, you can rest assured those politicians on the back end are stealing your money. And what these folks in this country need who cannot support their families, they don't need to care about whether a transgender athlete can compete in their local schools. What they need to care about is if they have enough money in their pocket to feed their families. And so we just want to make it explicit that, you know, this is about money. In a capitalist democracy, it's not about much anything else rather than money. And so let's pull their attention back to money, 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 and see if we can make some progress. Well, let me suggest something to advance your cause. And that is once you get them informed in a specific way, and they want to do something about it on their senators and representatives, why don't you formalize it with a summons? That is, you have a formal summons that you give them that they can sign demanding that their member comes to a town meeting that they, the people, organize with an advanced agenda in a deliberative public forum where they make their demands, substantiate them, show how the polls are left right behind, say, a higher minimum wage, $15 minimum wage, and ask the members with no flax, no intermediaries, where they stand. They've had plenty of time to think about it. But I think if you do it in a more formal way, and we've drafted the summons, and, and it exists on our website in my little book, Breaking Through Power, it's easier than we think. It attracts more media because it shows that it's much more organized, much more formal, and much more knowledgeable about the failures of Congress that the people want to correct beyond raising the minimum wage. And the second recommendation I'm going to make, Erica, we're talking with Erica Payne, the stalwart, irrepressible author of Tax the Rich, and also runs the group Patriotic Millionaires. I don't think it's effective to use the word raise the taxes on the rich as to restore the taxes on the rich. If their taxes were what they were in the prosperous 1960s, they would be much, much higher than the pre-Trump tax cuts. And there'd be much more money for public works and social safety nets and rebuilding our country here at home in so many ways. What do you think of those two ideas? Well, so first, Ralph, I think both of them are great ideas. Let me tell you what we've done. There's an element of this is, that is just purely public education. How has public policy affected the economy? And what does the public need to understand about how the economy is structured and how problematic it is to their own lives? And so that's phase one of the project. That's where we started in Whitefield, North Carolina, and where we're going to start when we go to Richland Center, Wisconsin on July 12th, and when we go to Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania in early September. So there's an education piece of this, and we want to let people 
people know all of those policies that they need to know. And then at the end of our curriculum, so to speak, we talk them through six different pieces of curriculum about the economy. And then at the end of them, at the end of that, we say, do you want to do something about this? And if you want to do something about it, we invite them to join American Deciders. And American Deciders is a community-led group of people. And right now we have the American Deciders of White Bull. And they work together specifically to reach out to lawmakers. So they have a lobby trip planned to Raleigh on July 19th. Earlier this week on Monday, they met with their county commissioners to tell the county commissioners that they hoped they would sign a letter of support asking the North Carolina lawmakers to come to the table across party lines and negotiate a higher wage floor. They've reached out to, they've got a petition going in their community that they've gotten everybody from the mayor and lots of average citizens to sign. These are citizens who are Republicans, Democrats, independents, and the biggest group of all can't stand any of them. And so they're doing exactly what you're saying, Ralph, and I think doing that really successfully. And that's the model that we're going to follow in all of these states is a long chunk of public education, help people understand the economic issues, and then ask them to make a proactive decision to join American Deciders. And we hope that American Deciders, which will be a bipartisan, cross-partisan, multiracial group of people focused on economic issues, that they will go engage with their lawmakers and either one of two things will happen. Their lawmakers will tell them that they're not going to raise the minimum wage and they're not going to fix the tax system, in which case I think these American deciders are going to do everything they can to get them out of office. Or politicians who are lagging indicators and who tend to want to stay in office are going to wake up and smell the coffee and make the changes that we need to see. And either one of those outcomes are perfectly fine with me. This is not a partisan issue. The, the premise of this project is that working people in America should be able to have the economy that they need, regardless of what political party is in charge. And, and, and this is a perfect time for it. Between, between now and Right after Labor Day, 75% of the days, members of Congress are going to be in recess. They're not going to be in Washington. They're supposed to be back home. And especially August, the great time for these town meetings, the demand should be we want to talk with no one other than our lawmakers. No flax, no staff, no PR intermediators. We want them on the stage, in the auditorium, back and forth, and we want a resolution of how they're going to vote when they go back and to Ralph, Congress. That's I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. So they're going to see him in Raleigh. And then the next step after that is going to be to organize a town hall in Whiteville to invite lawmakers from all levels of government, because this starts from even if the lawmakers don't have specific jurisdiction over the minimum wage, you know, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party is chock-a-block full of lawmakers who are on the city council, on the town council, on the county boards. We want to get every single lawmaker at every level of government to focus on the economy. The economy is what is going to make this country work or not work, and it is currently not working. And Erica, in North Carolina, the chair of the state Democratic Party is a very vigorous young woman in her 20s. So you've got some new energy there to get people out and to get the lawmakers to come and meet with well, the people and listen to their demands. Ralph, you're exactly right. I had an opportunity to spend some time with Anderson Clayton. She's half my age at 25 and I think has four times my level of energy. But um, she she's a real pistol. And she and I were talking about the dynamics of North Carolina. And just FYI, I would love to meet. I've met with the Republican head of the Columbus County 
Republican Party also. So I'm a bipartisan chatter on these topics. But um, Anderson, you know, let me know that she felt similarly to we did, that if a lawmaker would run on raising the minimum wage, they would really resonate with working people in the country. We've got people in Whiteville who are literally making $8 an hour. If you call Burger King and say, how much do you pay? It's $8 an hour. And one of the things that we pointed out to them is that in a small town in Washington state of the exact same size with the exact same makeup, folks who work at that exact same job are making $15, $16 an hour. The difference is what the law is. The difference is not the skill of the people. It's a location and a law issue. So North Carolinians should be able to get the same wages, certainly the people in Washington state can get. Erica, before we go to the questions by Steve, David, and Hannah, I just want your opinion on something. I know you you don't want to take a stand on this, but you know all about it. There's proposal for a stock transaction tax on stock trades, bond trades, and derivatives, which would, at a one-third of 1% sales tax, raise $300 billion a year, billion with a B. And people in New York have been proposing it. And the governor, Cuomo and Hochul, has been opposed to it. The interesting aspect of this is that people in New York walk into a store to buy necessities of life, and they're paying 6 7 8% sales tax, state and local. But if someone bought $100 million of ExxonMobil stock today, it pays zero, zero sales tax. I know that that's not in your charter, but... Would you advocate something like that as public policy? I mean, here's the thing. But do I individually think a financial transactions tax is a good idea? Certainly. Is that going to fix what's wrong with America? No. There are three things that we need to do in the American tax code. Number one, and by the way, we have proposed all of these in a new publication we just put out called Crack the Code. There are three principles that need to go into the next major rewrite the American tax code. Number one, we need a tax that is directly tied to the level of inequality in the country. So as the inequality goes up, the tax on the richest people in the country also goes up until it makes our country less equal. This will be a tax that in the beginning would generate a tremendous amount of revenue, although that is not the purpose. But over the long term, if done correctly, it would actually bring in no revenue because we would have solved the inequality. So that's number one, a tax tied directly to the level of inequality because the inequality is the cancer we're trying to solve. Number two, we need to equalize the tax rate for every kind of income, regardless of how you make it, if it's over a million dollars a year. Right now, if you make money off of your money, you pay a lower tax rate than if you make money off of your sweat. So in the game of their money versus your sweat, their money is winning. We need to end the differentiation between capital gains and ordinary income. Okay. Ronald Reagan agreed with you on that, but he couldn't get the Republicans to follow up. He said taxes on capital gains should be no different taxes on earned income. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason they should be different. And what what the lawmakers want to argue is that you need that incentive for investment. Well, guess what? What else are they going to do? Stick their money in a mattress somewhere? Mattresses don't provide very high returns. But the third point, and I also want to bring up this, is that we need to eliminate federal taxes for American citizens up to the cost of living. If you cannot yet afford to support yourself, we should not ask you to put money into the kitty, particularly when we've got billionaires building rockets, 
Okay, so right now in the federal tax code, you start paying taxes around $15,000, $17,000 a year after the standard deduction. We want to raise the standard deduction to about $35,000 a year and that you do not pay a single penny in federal taxes until you get above that point. And there is already a provision for this in the tax code. If you are delinquent on your taxes, you don't have to pay your back taxes until you have passed the cost of living. So right now we have delinquent taxpayers who have a bigger you know, benefit in the tax code than working people who have, who have been paying their taxes all along because you don't have to pay if you're delinquent until you have passed the cost of living around $35,000 a year. Whereas if you're a working person, you have to pay a lot earlier than that. So those are the three principles. They seem incredibly straightforward to us and that's what we're gonna be pushing. Those and more in the engrossing book by Erica Payne and her colleagues called Tax the Rich, and she's got a very generous offer to make you. Anna, do you want to describe the generous offer by Erica to our listeners for her book, Tax the Rich? Sure thing. So at ralphnaderradiohour.com on the show page, you'll find a form where you can request a free copy of Tax the Rich. Patriotic Millionaires is providing a free copy to the first 30 listeners who request it. So that's at ralphnaderradiohour.com. There you are, listeners. Well, we're out of time. Erica Payne, wish you uh, great success as you mobilize people in their common interests. You have the polls behind you. You have the facts behind you. You have the morality behind you. You have the future behind you. You have the overall justice behind you. How can you possibly fail? Thank you very much, Erica. Thank you. Thank you. AmericanAgenda.com. We've been speaking with Erica Payne. We have a link to the Patriotic Millionaires at RalphNaderRadioHour.com, along with a special offer from Patriotic Millionaires for Ralph Nader Radio Hour listeners, a free copy of Erica's book, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer, to the first 30 listeners to submit their request using the form on RalphNaderRadioHour.com. I want to thank our guests again, Abigail Disney and Erica Payne. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, which includes Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to The Wrap-Up, where we continue our conversation with Abigail Disney. i got to tell our listeners a success story, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Under the George W. Bush administration, the Republicans were about to pass a abolition of the estate tax, the federal estate tax, and some wealthy people got underway, led by the heir of the Hormel Meat Company. Mm-hmm. He rejected all his wealth in his 20s uh, because Collins. he didn't think I he deserved it. And he organized about a thousand rich people, including William Gates Sr., Bill Gates' mm-hmm. father, who was a lawyer at the time in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And they actually blocked it. I mean, it was a f- almost foregone conclusion that the Republicans had the votes and they had the momentum. And they blocked it cold, and the Republicans never tried to abolish the estate tax for super wealthy people again. So that's what happens when you mobilize people, you know what you're talking about, and the laser beam comes on the deciding institution, which in this case, as in so many cases, is the U.S. Congress. Congress, Congress, Congress. 
Steve, how about a question or a comment for Abigail? Yeah, thank you, Ralph. I can't believe Disney Plus is not streaming your movie. I'm actually a Writers Guild member who's marching around your namesake. Me too. Me too. I'm Burbank. not marching around there, but me too. Yeah. Writers and Guild. So identify with that, even though I'm not in dire straits, but it is emblematic of what's going on across yeah. industries nationwide. Early on in the movie, when you first write to Bob Iger, and he writes back a very short answer, and he says that the the fact that these workers can't survive is a government failure, he says. Mm -hmm. What do you think he was talking about there? I mean, is he is he talking about not providing a social safety net? And if that mm -hmm. social safety net doesn't exist, that means they've got to yeah. tax me more. What was your interpretation of his response? Well, first of all, I spit my coffee out when I read that because it was amazing. And in one sense, if you give him some benefit of the doubt, he's not wrong about the fact that the public school system is failing and that the roads are falling apart and healthcare is a mess. And, and so there are a lot of problems and raising their wages on its own isn't going to fix those kinds of problems. But actually raising their wages would go a long way towards solving a lot of their problems and to and to pretend that raising their wages isn't a really important thing. And it's not up to you whether the public's, I mean, who cares? That's not, you can do this essential thing right now with a stroke of a pen. You could just do this. How is it acceptable to you that people can't put food on the table? How is that all right with you, especially at $65 million a year? So I kind of, it was almost comical, but it was awful. It was absurd in like the Camus kind of sense. It was absurd that he said that. And I thought it was interesting because it's the people in the companies who are saying the government should get out of our way. And then the minute somebody complains about something, they want the government to step in. Same with the way they furloughed everybody. Look, I understand. <clears throat> Furlough them. You're not going to have any revenues. But, you know, look at how quickly they expected the government to step in and supplement unemployment and, and offer people... You know, this is the same government that they've been getting out of paying taxes to, that they've been getting subsidies from, that the Anaheim government has been held up for so many disgusting subsidies. And then right away, we're like, oh, well, the government will take care of it. The hypocrisy is sickening, sickening. David? Hi, Abigail. You said something that just amazed me. You shed some light on what most Americans have trouble believing. When we fight wars, they always say we're doing it to spread democracy. <laughs> America is synonymous with democracy. Yeah. There's nothing more American than the Disney family. Could you speak more to how your family did not believe in democracy? I, I, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, that wasn't my Disney side of the family, to be clear. I didn't hear that from the Disney side of the family. But it's a commonly held view on the far right that a real democracy where everybody gets an equal chance to vote is going to give you an, a stupid outcome because people are mostly stupid. And that, that we know the value of people based on, you know, how high they've risen, how much money they've made, whether or not they're successful or powerful. That is not an uncommon view. That is why there's no blushing on the right wing as they push us ever closer to an authoritarian fascist system, which, you know, I'm old enough to remember when people use the word fascist and you kind of made fun of them because it was a ridiculous thing to kind of pull out in a conversation. But this is not funny anymore. I mean, what Ron DeSantis has done in terms of using the government to punish a corporation for speech, even if the company is getting a subsidy it really shouldn't have, 
But to specifically tie it to speech like that, that is straight up fascist. And that's how Argentina got all the corporations behind them as the generals took over. This is straight from the playbook. And so they're not blushing because they actually honestly believe that the government will be better run by a handful of successful people rather than the people, the Vox Populi. Well, Ron DeSantis has broader ambitions, Abigail. Mm -hmm. We call him Ron de Mussolini. Yeah. Anna? Steve, did you have a follow-up before I... I was just going to say, it's hard to know who to root for in that Ron DeSantis. <laughs> yeah, I know, Disney I know, I know. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go ahead, Hannah. Thanks. I was going to say, hyperbole is dead, apparently. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I found the film moving and infuriating, which I think is a hallmark of, of a good documentary. And something you said about, you know, I appreciated the Disney as just another corporation in context of, of broader scope of American economic policies. And, but the stories of the workers in the film struck a chord with me as someone who's worked in nonprofits, mm. as people who thought that they were working for a social enterprise, yes. that they came, you know, you, exactly. mentioned, you mentioned kind of the early vi founding vision of the company. Yeah. And it seems that the, one of the fundamental conflicts in the film and in the relationship between the employees and the company itself is that Disney does not see its employees as stakeholders. Yeah. And yeah. the journeys of the people in the film, to me, it was, you know, they were devalued, they were disillusioned. And during the pandemic, they were discarded. Yeah. And something I've wondered is about, you know, in terms of mobilizing people, mobilizing change, do you see that kind of a way to direct that passion, a way to, to right. redirect that into mobilization? I mean, we saw it in the film. So I guess yeah. it's a prompt as it is as much as it is a question, but I'm curious mm -hmm. your thoughts on that. You're right about the employees at Disney. And, you know, one of the reasons I felt I needed to do this film was because my name isn't McDonald or Gap or 3M. Disney is, a, as much as it's just like any other corporation, it's not, you know, <laughs> because families, I mean, I stand outside of that park and I watch the families come out and I cry because what they are coming out with as an experience, even though they've been, you know, it's been highway robbery, what they had to pay to get in there and what they had to pay for the food while they were there and so forth. But take all that out of them. That's not what they're thinking about. They are happy and bonded in ways that are so important. So there's a really important value in, in what happens at Disney as a company, not everything that it does, but, but certainly at the parks. And the people who work there see that every day and they see themselves as facilitating a really important thing happening. So they are a lot like not-for-profit workers. They go to work every day with a mission, which is to make people smile. And it sounds goofy, uh, goofy, <laughs> um, yeah. but it, it is what they do. And so they were hard to mobilize because they're very loyal to the company. They didn't like to criticize it. They really, really love the company, even when they get treated that way. But I wish more workers could see the way that once they mobilized, it became its own reward. And that's what I found in my life as I've become more active politically, the more I do, the more I want to do, because it brings me into a kind of bonded relationship with people who are very different from me. It makes me feel like I'm not some princess in a tower, but that I'm really a per just a person. And that's the good news. And I think that 
if more workers would try mobilizing together, they would come to see the rewards of that mobilizing in their daily lives and in, you know, if I can be lofty, the meaning of their lives. On that point, before we conclude, what's your view of the Silicon Valley wardens of the Internet gulag abducting our youngsters hours a day, separating from their parents, community, Mm -hmm. nature? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people without a great deal of sense of their responsibility to people were let loose on our landscape and really didn't evaluate the consequences of what they were doing and haven't really chosen to step into the into the real responsibility that they have for the society that they've constructed uh, around us. So I really do think, again, as you say, Congress, 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 we really need some aggressive regulation of the tech sector. Because if, you know, Elon Musk can just sort of take a public resource like Twitter, because it was a public resource, and then like kind of bend it to his own whims, then we really have the kind of the the worst of all possible media and tech environments. And we really need to think about what we want to construct around ourselves. Well, we'll see when Elon Musk and uh, Mark Zuckerberg go mano a mano at the stage in Las Vegas physically. You know what I want? Without any virtual reality between them. Let's see if they follow through on their pugilistic boasting. There's only one thing I want them to do. I want them to have that fight, but I want them to have it on a spaceship that's a one-way spaceship out of the car. (laughs) You could send them each uh, your special ring. Yeah, there you go. That would give them magic powers. (laughs) Okay. And now the rest of the crew asks questions of Erica Payne. Steve? Yes, thank you, Ralph. Erica, take us a little bit behind the scenes because, you know, at a personal level, people one-on-one were very divided. And you talked about the social issues dividing us like that. So take us a little bit behind the scenes at these meetings where you've gathered this disparate group of people who are Democrats, Republicans, who might not agree on social issues and are mixed race. What has happened in those meetings? Have people like come together? Stephen, it is probably one of the most beautiful human experiences I have had in my life. So basically what happens is we start, we invited the entire town of Whiteville. This is 5,000 people. We mailed 5,000 invitations to every person in Whiteville and said, join us for a free dinner at Dale's Seafood. Dale's Seafood is a great seafood restaurant in Whiteville. Everybody loves it. So we rented the back room. We asked people to come. We probably had about 80 people come through the first time and um, serve them dinner. And we give them a little short presentation about a different aspect of the economy. And the first presentation is the big picture. And we try to take them through the whole thing, soup to nuts, what it looks like. And with that introduction, we say, if you're interested and you want to have dinner again next week, come on back. And so that's what we've been doing. We also, we, we give people a $50 stipend to thank them for taking their time out because time is the most valuable commodity a person has. And um, so we want to recognize, you, we want to recognize and thank them for their participation. And then we try to make it fun. So we do a drawing every time a woman who had just gotten home from the Trump rally the week before won the vacuum cleaner at her first session. And let's tell you, these folks are building relationships with each other. They are learning together. And now they are going out. They have been to Strawberry Fest, to the Monster Truck Relay, to Farm Days, to Juneteenth, to all of these festivals, passing out flyers about the Great Economy Project, telling people how the economy is rigged against them, inviting more and more of their citizens to come to these sessions that we host and have supper with us. And we have seen relationships built 
white people, black people, Republicans, Democrats. We have folks in these sessions, we invite them to bring their kids, bring their kids, because who in the heck can afford childcare these days? And so the folks participating in this meeting are literally from babies in arms to, you know, one of my favorite participants is a woman, I don't want to give away her age, but she, you know, she's north of 70, 75 or 80. I mean, we have a range of folks. And I mean, y'all, they, so we went through all this education system and then 100% of the people who saw, you know, who saw the curriculum, 100% of them across party lines decided they wanted to join American Deciders. And when one of the first sessions we hosted after that, they made the most beautiful decorations, red, white, and blue, bows, flowers, to invite the rest of their community to come learn what they had learned. And we are seeing a level of energy and commitment and connectedness. I mean, here's the thing. These are the most powerful people in the country. They really don't have any idea. But, but in Whiteville, North Carolina, working class Republicans in Whiteville, North Carolina, are some of the most powerful people in that entire state. So the thought is, if we can get them to understand how the economy is rigged, get them to work alongside their Democratic, you know, not friends then, but going to be friends now, if they can work together, boy, can we change the whole world. Not only that, but they realize what's obvious, that they all bleed the same color, no matter what backgrounds they come or ideologies or race or ethnicity. They're all ripped off and exploited. They all bleed the same color. And when they see that, there's a tremendous unity wave that goes through the room. David. Cori Bush is my favorite congresswoman. She was once homeless. She slept in a car with her family. And I think the Democratic Party has to be the party of Cori Bush. So let me ask you about a cultural shift in which the Democratic Party purges itself of millionaires. If you're a millionaire, you can vote for a Democrat, but you can't be part of the Democratic leadership or run for office as a Democrat. We see your financial disclosures. If you're not middle class, if you're rich, you can vote for a Democratic candidate, but you can't run for federal office as a Democrat or be part of the Democratic leadership. Wouldn't that transform the Democratic Party? Grover Norquist forces Republicans to take a pledge not to raise taxes. It's not enforceable by law, but it's a cultural shift. What about a cultural shift in the Democratic Party? We see your financial disclosures. If you're a millionaire, you can be a Democrat. You just can't be part of the leadership or run for office as a Democrat. That solves the problem, doesn't it? No, David, I don't think, I mean, you don't want to disenfranchise anybody. I don't think I want to disenfranchise rich people any more than I want to disenfranchise poor people. I just want people to have an equal amount of political representation. And Kirsten Cinema grew up in a gas station. As far as I can tell, she's one of the worst people in the bunch. She refuses even to close the carried interest loophole. So, I mean, I would, put, I would put any number of our members who are high net worth Americans. I don't think you have to be rich or poor to understand the basics of math of what we've done to the economy. So I, I don't personally think that's a great solution. What I would rather see is the Democratic Party actually make a commitment to working people instead of paying a bunch of lip service to it. And until I see 100% of the Democrats on a minimum wage bill that raises the minimum wage to something somebody can live on, I'm going to keep on frontally assaulting them for as long as possible. As Bishop Barber said from North Carolina, an increase of 10% in voter turnout from low-income people can ensure a majority in Congress for a progressive economic agenda. Well, uh, and here's Hannah? the thing, again, this goes back to we think people should have, working people should have the economy they want regardless of what political party is in charge. All they have to do is learn to demand it. 
So the first question you should ask a lawmaker is, what do you think the wage for should be? And do you think it should be sufficient that a human being could live on it? And the second question should be, what are you going to do about the grotesque concentration of wealth and power at the top that is destroying our democracy because those people have captured the government? So those, those are the two things. And then if you want to ask them about some of these social issues, go ahead after that. But you should make your political decisions based on what they think about money, because this is about money. Anna? Thank you. I'm curious about the education curriculum. I imagine a lot of those conversations would fall under the like, oh, tell me something I don't already know. You know, I'm being ripped off. I'm being underpaid. I'm curious kind of what the, were there any topics that people were the most shocked by? Any, any information that, that stick out as like the most shocking to participants? There's one slide that we have in the presentation that shows how wages and productivity essentially through American history reasonably tracked together. And then around the mid 70s, they really began to split. And so you have a V-shaped, or I mean, we call it an alligator mouth, but I mean, it basically one line goes up and that line is productivity and the other line remains completely flat and that's worker wages. And that single chart, I think, helps people see exactly what's happened because all of the gains of productivity went to the ownership class. They went to the capital class. They did not go to the working class. And so I think when people see that chart, it really does something to them. And then the Tax the Rich presentation, if you don't feel like reading the whole book, you can go to taxtherich.com and there's a 15-minute presentation that'll tell you everything you need to know about the federal tax code. And we compare two couples, the work carts and the slumps, and how the American tax system treats them. At the end of that 15-minute presentation, we, we get basically everybody on our side. So I think those are the two, Hannah, that most stick out to folks. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we speak to Maxim Thorne about his organization, Civic Influencers. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Thieves in the temple. Too much money changing.